When are we going to start, Claire? Should I start? Yeah. Oh, God, I've never started before. This is going to be really strange. Yes, you have. Twice. Have I? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's fine. Right, I feel less apprehensive now. So that vanilla sprinkle sponge and pink custard you used to have as a child at the school meals, that was made from beaver anuses. Oh, hi, didn't see you there. This is Everyone Dies in Sunderland, a podcast about growing up terrified in the 80s and 90s. Every week, we take a trip back to a year of our Northeast childhood, taking a look at one of the notorious crimes that happened close by while we were playing What Time Is It, Mr. Wolf? Um, how do I start at Gareth again? And with me today is... Oh, okay. Oh, hang on. What are you again? You're a, you're a DVD reviewer for the Sun. Former DVD reviewer for The Sun, the newspaper, not the celestial body. Okay. And with me today is Gareth, former DVD reviewer of The Sun. That's the newspaper, not the celestial body. Hiya, everybody. It's nice to be with you again. Uh, that was Claire Robinson there. And the man best known for interviewing the boxer, Mark DeMori, ahead of his fight against David Hay, John Hart. Master storyteller. All right, the Mark Damari. He told me um, if he beat David Hay, he was going to retire. And I, I checked his, uh, his record, and he's got a fight the week after next. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was going to introduce Claire as well. I've got a bit of a story. I was going to say, and with us as always, is the winner of the 1994 series of Junior MasterChef, as if anyone's going to look up and see that it was really Casey Target Adams, Claire Robinson. Not only that, I emailed Katie Target Adams to see if she would come on to suddenly jump halfway through our podcast and say, I'm Katie Target Adams, and I definitely won the 1994 series of Junior MasterChef. But um, she has joined the Queen in refusing to reply to our emails. You think she's better than us? What's she ever done? You've interviewed many illustrious stars. I have watched them on my DVD player. You know, why do these people turn their backs on this job? She's a successful harpist now. Mm. Yeah, also, she did the like Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra podcast a couple of months ago about knockabout stuff, about transporting a harp around the world. Oh. We're at least as big as them. Absolutely. She'll do that, but not as disgusting. Anyway. So, so two introductions for Claire tonight. And thank you, Claire, so much for doing tonight's Oh Hi because mine was so bad, I couldn't even bring myself to run it past Concerts Prelude, Ellie Kemper impersonator, who usually if I think, is this, as Gareth referred to, this is a bit dodge. I didn't even bring myself to run past her because this is the week that she did say to me, if you ever get, hope you get your dick wet printed on the tote bag, I'm divorcing you. And it was way <laughs> worse than that. <laughs> I really want a tote bag that says, I hope you don't get your dick wet. <laughs> I'd say, would it be okay if we got a tote bag that says, if you ever get a tote bag that says, <laughs> if you get your dick wet printed on it, I'm divorcing you. The, the downside is, of course, that my while we were was going to be, while well, we were preoccupied with our Panini USA 94 sticker albums. Oh my that's, God. That's a nice one. So, so I could say, poor Andreas Escobar. Do you know that Alan Hansen really did say, the defender wants shooting for that. The day after that literally happened to Andreas Escobar. <laughs> Alan Hansen, what he said on Match of the Day 1994 was way worse than my hypothetical, oh, I didn't see you there, which will appear at some point. So I think you've given the game away there, John, about what year we're going to be doing this week. Absolutely. 1994. But before we do that, what's your nichest heresy? Oh, I'm a massively objectionable person, and I have loads. 
I have to explain um, this. I'm glad you both jumped on board with this because I had to explain this quite a lot with Constance Perley, a Kemper impersonator. So what I mean by that is what view do you hold that would get you cancelled by the 15 people who share your tastes, but everyone else in the world would literally not know what you're talking about and not care? Where this came from for me was that I was, in the week, I made another attempt to listen to Spiderland by Slint. Now, people who know me, people who are listening and don't know me, I, I do have a taste for the kind of alternative music that I fully appreciate a lot of people will listen to and say, you can't possibly like this. <laughs> and I say, I do. I do like it. I, do. I appreciate it's not for everyone. I do really like The Fall. And, you know, I think, I think we actually cut the bit where we talked about how we are The Fall of UK True Crime Podcasting. But as someone who does like a bit of my math rock, a bit of my experimental rock, like the touchstone album of the entire genre is Spiderland by Slint. Everyone says that's the greatest album in the experimental rock canon. No, it's utter, utter garbage. Don't listen to it. It's awful. I hate it. To about 15 people who also like experimental rock of the early 90s, that is absolute heresy, niche heresies. So while you compose your thoughts, both of you, Adam from UK True Crime Podcast, one of the uh, founding lights of our scene, got in touch with me today and said, I love that. And I said, great, do you have one? And he said, no. My nichest heresy is that I think that that podcast is rubbish. That's what I'm going on record with. <laughs> no, um... I always thought it was going to be red-handed that we started beef with, but all right, you do. <laughs> I think my issue is that I was thinking about them and I just don't think that they're niche enough. Like... For example, John, obviously you and I are both big Doctor Who fans and that toxic fandom in and of itself has a lot of niche heresies that the thousand people in Doctor Who fandom will disagree with me, not the 15. So, for example, Colin Baker, given the right material, is a better Doctor than Tom Baker. That's one of my niche heresies. Another one is that cancelling the show was the best thing that ever happened to it. Uh, yeah, they turned the corner, Gareth! No, no, no. <laughs> and I genuinely never want the missing episodes to be recovered because the thought of the power of the Daleks will inevitably be much better than the power of the Daleks. And then I sort of started trying to zero in on a niche heresy. So I sort of went down various lanes. I went down cookery because I like cookery. And my niche heresy is that Gary Rhodes is a mediocre chef. But again, too many people <laughs> know who Gary Rhodes is. Um, Isn't he dead? Yes. Did he die? Yeah, he died like five years ago or something. Of what? Of being too mediocre a chef. I genuinely (laughs) don't know. All I remember him for is his, oh, you know, Paul off of Tekken, his hair. He had hair like that. He did. He did have hair like that. So I zoned in on one that, again, is probably too widely known, but still, the DC Comics detective, Ralph Dibney, also known as the world-famous Elongated Man, is a more interesting, more well-rounded, and more interesting-to-read character than Batman, and should be in everything that they do. Love it. Wow. Claire? So, I feel like my niche heresy, one I'd probably get sacked for, for mentioning, so I I can't go into that one. And the other one... Is it you find horses really attractive? You think horses are the sexiest (laughs) of all of the animals? Why is it always going to come back to bestiality for you? (laughs) You just, you just reminded me of something else, a flash in the past. I think it was this. One of the bands I like, who are 
sadly, undeservedly niche, uh, Johnny Foreigner. I think they once tweeted, I've just realised I'm never going to write anything as catchy as I love horses best of all the animals. (laughs) (laughs) Do continue. The other one, I feel like it's not really niche enough. I have the same issue that Gareth has in that in my head, it's really niche because there's only a small number of people that I know that also know this thing. But actually, it's global, so it's not niche enough. Go on, then. Okay, so... We still want to it. Okay, so it's basically that the sport that I play and that I do love has the most horrendous dumpster fire of dealing with dramatic things that happen in the sport that actually that's why we can't manage to make it bigger than what it actually is because it's so volatile and even though they seem like they want to be really open and encompassing they're only open and encompassing to certain individuals and if you don't conform to that you get cancelled so I'm probably never going to go back to roller derby after this because everyone's like she's a twat get rid of her what what I like about yours, Claire, is that it's got legitimate stakes. Like ours are just crappy opinions of like my superhero is better than my superhero, whereas yours is like, no, I'm just gonna burn all of the bridges. Yeah, burn them to the ground. When I was first explaining this idea to Constance Prelly, Ellie Kemper impersonator, she came up with a roller derby one, and she got it wrong because it wasn't. I said, no, that's not a niche heresy. That's an out of fashion opinion. It was something like uh, flat walls should come back. I think she was saying. <gasps> that is a proper controversial one. Yeah. And I said, Although, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be tactically astute? Because no one knows how to deal with flat walls anymore. So that would be unpopular and out of fashion, but actually quite a good idea. If you could make an impenetrable flat wall again, you'd be sorted. Question. Aren't walls all flat? Otherwise, they're corners. <laughs> <laughs> also an astute observation. The one she actually came back with was Blink-182 are a better band with Matt Skiba than they ever were with Tom DeLonge. <gasps> well, I know, I know. For a band 30 years in, their last two albums have been really good. If you're saying anything they've done is better than anything on a member of the state, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I don't think I've listened to Blink-182 since I was about 16. But then again, I do read comics, so I can't cast aspersions. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, should we do? Uh, if, if it was now we've mentioned actually, do it up front. Shout outs because we've mentioned Adam from uh, UK True Crime. Quite a lot of other True Crime podcasts have been have been saying hi and supporting us. Podcasts, John. Podcasts, yeah, they're um, they're progressive podcasts. <laughs> we call them. So hello to uh, to Yield Crime, uh, Wine Diner Story Time, and Oklahoma Side, all of whom have been really supportive in the scene this week and made us feel very loved. And we shall link them in our shoe notes. We really should come up with a true crime podcast heresy now to uh, to alienate people. Now we've been all warm and loving. I mean, I feel mm. like we're our own heresy. We're too niche. We're very niche. We're niche than niche. And we're going to put that on a tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, 1994. Then we are a regionally specific true crime podcast. And something really interesting about true crime is that it's regionally specific. Now, I was talking a few years ago to someone uh, who works in criminal justice, and they were telling me about how the Northumbria police force, at least in that area, weapons-based assaults are very low nationally, but non-weapon assaults are very high. So basically, we do violence with fists, not weapons. (laughs) Doesn't that make you proud? And another thing is, we don't really have a lot of serial killers. 
Unless they're really good at it, of course. Because really, there's only uh, Mary Ann Cotton in the 1850s, Mary Wilson in the 1950s, and possibly Mary Bell in 1960s. Although uh, Constance Prelly, Ellie Kemp from First Data has read the excellent book about it, Cries Unheard, which I haven't read, but she was very angry when I uh, suggested that Mary Bell was a serial killer. So I should have to bow to her additional knowledge than that. Do you think that... Do you think that maybe we could cut the crime rate in half by just having an agreement that we don't name our children Mary? <laughs> is absolutely wild, isn't it, that they are, all are called Mary. But it's, the coincidence is that last week uh, we looked at Alan Grimson, who might have been a serial killer, and today we're going to have a look at Stephen Griefson, who definitely was, and something they both have in common is they're both gay, or at least bisexual. So what does it say to us as a region in which case, all around the world, the people most likely to be murdered are women and gay men. But in the Northeast, they're the ones that kill you. <laughs> Progressive. Wonderful. Exactly. I love it. Mary Wilson, by the way, not to be confused with the woman from the Supremes. That's Diana Ross. <laughs> also, not, also not to be confused with the wife of Prime Minister Harold Wilson who is indirectly responsible for my all-time favourite footnotes. If you've got um, Anish Heresy, by the way, do get in touch. We'll run through the social media stuff in a second. But I, I particularly want to hear your all-time favourite footnotes because I'd love to see what happens then. <laughs> John, I genuinely believe that nobody other than you and your diseased brain has ever thought, oh, that footnote, that was the best footnote I've ever read out of all of the footnotes I've ever read. This one... Right. It's in um, the Crosman Diaries, the uh, cabinet minister of the period, Richard Crosman's fabulously indiscreet diaries, which he published posthumously as like his final V-sign to the world, because <laughs> that's a very, very Dick Crosman move. It's a Dick move, a Dick Crosman move. <laughs> um, there's one bit where um, he's waiting in the flat at 10 Downing Street to uh, have a meeting with Harold Wilson. And he's there with one of the, a, a sp spokesmen, later a Labour MP, Gerald Kaufman. And because of the wonderfully mundane nature of British politics and obviously making them live in a small flat above the office with their families, uh, Mary Wilson, Harold Wilson's wife, uh, makes them something to eat while they're waiting. And she gets Richard Crossman, she gets him some tinned pilchards on toast. And for Gerald Kaufman, she gets Jewish eggs. And <laughs> what? Jewish egg? Says, yeah, the footnote says, this is a product of Crossman's culinary and imagination. There is no such dish. <laughs> I don't know what footnote. Borat has. Doesn't Borat have Jewish Jewish eggs? Jew Isn't that a thing? <laughs> I don't know. I want to know the recipe for Jewish eggs now. No such meal exists, Gareth. You can have no, I, yes, but she clearly presented it as Jewish eggs. So I want to know what she thought with Jewish eggs. And I've realised that we're all saying Jewish eggs far too much. Wouldn't it be weird if the, her version of Jewish eggs was actually deviled eggs or something? Oh, God, yeah. Controversially named that we would think of as something uh -huh. else. I, I would be horrified if Mary Wilson was to hold such a view because my favourite other thing about her um, is that she didn't really like going to state functions. Um, there's a quote from her, like, the only good thing about having to wear a ball gown is that you can wear tights with a ladder in and no one sees. I mean, why wear the tights? Why? Why? Why, why even wear the tights? Well, of course, the sad thing was she, she lived to a fabulous age. Um, she only died a couple of years ago and she was well past 100. So it's only recently that we could have not actually tried to contact Lady Wilson and said, Jewish eggs, what are they? <laughs> And then being ultimately rebuffed. 
<laughs> like, and equally, it's a shame Michael that we Queen couldn't... and Katie Target Adams. <laughs> and like we've established, Gary Rhodes is also dead, so we can't even contact him. Brain hemorrhage. Uh, is that what he thanks. had? But what I'm saying is, if you're kind to the Sunderland police of the 1990s, which we aren't always, you could say that having to deal with an active serial killer was something that they weren't used to. But imagine you are the police. How many identical deaths would it take before you accepted that there was an active serial killer on your hands? I mean, is this if I am me in the Sunderland police force or, is it, or if I am a member of the Sunderland police force? Because those are two different answers. That you, Gareth. Okay. I would probably stake the uh, the only connect four points on the second the second one. Claire? I think it'd probably be more like three because one match could be just a fluke, whereas two matches, definitely a pattern. Mm-hmm. Well, the best you're... Oscar Wilde quote ever. <laughs> one, one match <laughs> might just be a fluke, but two <laughs> matches, people. there's definitely a pattern, Lady Windermere. <laughs> In the case of the Sunderland police, it's four. And horrifically, they were all between the ages of 14 and 18, which was only slightly older than we were at the time. And they all went to the same school, Monkwe enough, known locally as Monkey House. Now, it's a cliche to say this is like something out of a horror movie, but to have four children from the same school die the same way, one after the other, and for the police to keep insisting that there's nothing wrong. I mean, that is a horror movie. Weirdly, one of the best sources of information on this case are Sunderland Football Club message boards. <laughs> now, <laughs> but no, you laugh, but it's like people were went to this school because it, these killings happened around Roker, around what, what was at the time where the football ground was. So big fans of Sunderland, you know, were literally remember this happening. They were at this school. They And that, that's why some of the quotes on these message boards really bring it home to you what it must have been like to live through. So some of them are... He murdered people at my school. It could have been any of us. Kids at Monkey House were terrified that the lads were being murdered. And not the first time police in Sunderland have dropped a monumental bollock. (laughs) (laughs) But there is one quote that really stands out, and it's this. I was from the other side of the water, but I remember my man hammering home the be wary of strangers talk. But the killer wasn't a stranger. He was known to everyone. And that's what makes these message board threads even more chilling. I can remember him knocking about Roker Park when I was at Ben. I think I might have even played football with him. I played for Wearmouth in 1990. I think he was our goalie. So this is the story of Stephen Greveson, commonly known as the Sunderland Strangler. But you know, on this podcast, we do try to steer clear of serial killer nicknames because they're crass and insensitive and they make pathetic, inadequate people seem like supernatural monsters and give them the recognition and even a claim they don't deserve. It's what they want. Don't give them what they want. They're the worst people in the world. And in this case, if you have to give him a nickname, surely Roker Choker is much better than Sunderland Strangler. Well, at least it keeps the rhyming theme going. Stephen Greveson, the Roker Stroker, Roker Choker. Stroker. The Roker Stroker is a different criminal altogether. That's what you were saying in our group chat before, wasn't it, Gareth? That like, you like the idea that... Uh, if we have to give him a nickname, serial killer's nicknames, they have to have rhyming in some way. I had a previous idea, right? I'm nipping back onto football, weirdly, is that occasionally when footballers do something really heinous um, or at least get accused of it, there's a bit of a debate about <laughs> when they're released, should they be able to pick up their career after they've been in prison? Because obviously our, our criminal justice system is kind of built on the idea that 
you know, once you've served your time, you should be able to move on with your life. In fact, we have a piece of legislation called the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act, which says that you can't not get a job without good reason you know, after you've been in prison. On the other hand, it doesn't seem really fair that people can destroy other people's lives and then just go to prison for a bit and then rock up like nothing's happened and continue with their lives. So I thought that one of the best ideas I've had is that you should be able to play football again, but whenever your like name is announced over the tannoy, there has to be a reference made to the crime you've committed. <laughs> so it's kind of like, and number seven today is registered sex offender, Montague Tabernacle. Well, John, while I think that that's a great idea, the problem is people will get really, really bored of just sitting through the constant, and here is rapist so-and-so, <laughs> rapist so-and-so. You know, it gets to a point where you just don't want to hear that many rapists. I just think, you know, it, it, it lets people and move on with their lives, but also in a way that doesn't feel unfair to their victims. Say a footballer ever scores a goal. It just flashes up on the big screen, registered sex offender, registered sex offender. And they actually have to go, as their goal celebration has to be sit at the side of the, of the pitch, sign the sex offenders register with their probation officer. <laughs> Isn't that just, it's an elegant compromise between two very difficult positions. And I think I've come up with it. I've got no words. It's genuinely speechless. I anyway. thought I was the one that used to say the worst things on this podcast. <laughs> I didn't even do the oh hi. Uh, <laughs> so my compromise here is we'll allow serial killer nicknames, but they have to make them sound stupid and silly. So a couple of weeks ago, we did We're So Jack while trying not to mention Peter Sutcliffe's nickname. But I'm perfectly happy to do it if, in tribute to his iconic homemade long johns, we only call him the dangly willy killer in future. <laughs> I think my problem, well, no. I think my problem with today's killer is that he killed people. But equally... <laughs> I feel that today's Denise heresy. <laughs> with his nickname was that it was so derivative. There were like there's the Boston Strangler, there's the mm -hmm. Suffolk Strangler, the Stranglers all over the place. It just the Stranglers. The, what, sorry, the Stranglers, <laughs> yes, that, that to my knowledge haven't strangled anyone. So you know, don't don't come at us. So if you've got an idea for uh, you know a, a new nickname for famous serial killers that makes them sound much sillier and more ridiculous than the nicknames they currently have. Uh, drop us a line at everyone dies in sunblend at gmail.com uh, everyone dies pod uh, on the twitter claire what's our bebo at everyone underscore dies underscore in underscore sunderland for us on instagram please feel free to send us all of the random facts that you know about the years that we send out and on facebook just look for us as everyone dies in sunderland and you come say hi right and why because it's now a bit gloaming where i am will i go and switch the lights on Let's take a trip back to 1994, as always, by 1994 correspondent, Claire Robinson. Can I just clean out my cat litter tray? Because he's had his shit and it absolutely stinks. Is that what you were coughing at? Yeah. <laughs> you go for it. We don't want yeah, any more interruptions. We might keep I'll, it in the edit. That's I'll fine. You, keep, you told the world that I was going for a wee, so you can tell them I'm cleaning out my cat litter tray as well. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> Come back. 1994? 1994. 1994. 1994. So 1994 was the year where CFAX prematurely killed off the Queen Mother. <gasps> so, so don't know how it happened because, you know, I'm not interested in the, the minutiae. I'm just interested in the broad spectrum. But yeah, CFAX somehow 
made the announcement that the Queen Mother had died on the 11th of November 1994. Luckily, she continued to thrive on and she lived until 2002, so they got that one wrong. I do like the way that you lead on that, rather than, I don't know, the Rwandan genocide. (laughs) Again, if you could see my book of stuff and things, there is no note about the Rwandan genocide anywhere on this. You did share Obviously. it in the group chat, and you have got Psych by PJ and Duncan released. Yes, I have, because it's a top album of the year. You know who wrote Let's Get Ready to Rumble? The guy who wrote The Gladiator theme tune. Is it? Hans Zimmer. No, uh, it's actually David Bowie's touring keyboard player. Mm-hmm. I should have known that, but I didn't, because I'm not a PJ and Duncan fan. I don't think anyone is. Well, you clearly are, enough to put it on your list above the Rwandan genocide. Yeah, but it's just the Rwandan genocide, like, tiny little, tiny little thing. We are Kevin Carter jokes down here. I'm not going to use them now. (laughs) I mean, you can ramble on about it, but but I won't know anything about it, so it's fine. No, it's it's a bit of a downer. I'm not saying that most of the things we talk about aren't a bit of a downer. You've also got to remember, in 1994, I was nine. So the Rwandan genocide, although it may have been a major life event for the world, wasn't really a major life event for me. No, fair enough. But you have reminded me, we've got another shout out to one of our friends on Twitter, uh, David of David's Blurk. 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 When we were saying, what do you remember about 1994? Said, Kurt Cobain died. And I said, do you remember it happening? And he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, hello to David. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining in on our nonsense on on Twitter. I remember Kurt Cobain dying because uh, news broke when I was on a ferry to my uh, school French exchange in Alsace Lorraine. Other things from 1994, which did manage to make it onto my little book of knowledge, are the RAF and what used to be the women's RAF didn't know this was a thing, merged for the very first time. I didn't realise it was a separate Women's Royal Air Force. No, that sounds mad, doesn't it? Well, it was like we were saying last week about sort of gay people serving in the military. All of these women being a distraction to all of the men when they're flying their planes behind them and looking at the beautiful asses of the women planes in front of them. You're <laughs> just going to cause a, co- a collision, aren't you, really? Well, I mean, I wouldn't trust me flying a plane. But that's because I'm me. <laughs> that's a robo thing, right? Not a lady <laughs> yeah. thing. It's not a lady thing, it's a me <laughs> thing. Other facts from the year. Lesbianism was finally <laughs> recognised. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Every week I've got random randomness. <laughs> that's the title <laughs> of this week's show, by the way. <laughs> Other facts from this year. Lesbianism. Lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Lesbianism was finally recognised for the first time in British law, and that was because of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act. They finally lowered and recognised the age of consent for male homosexuals from 21 to 18, Mm -hmm. and they lowered females to 16. But what I found really interesting about it was, this is something that you wouldn't necessarily have expected. The reason that they didn't have equality in the age drop was because Labour did not back the vote. It was the Tories who were going to vote it in as an equality measure Mm. to make both male and female of a homosexual orientation be able to have sex at 16. Did not know that. Wow. Yes, 38 Labour MPs blocked it. Eek. Different times. Once again, staggeringly late. Like, if you think about it, three years later, as we discussed on a previous podcast, 
things can only get better. Tony Blair, all of this, New Labour, la la la. But 1994 for lesbians to happen. Yeah, like it's nuts. Weird. Like I don't. Need, it, it's weird because obviously I know I would be nine in 1994. I don't remember it ever not being a thing, even though <laughs> I was nine when that happened. I thought you were going to say obviously if it had happened before, I'd have been a lesbian in 1994. <laughs> One of the little facts that I thought you guys might be interested in, because it's not down my alley, although I did used to watch it before Buffy used to come on on BBC Two on an evening. So two episodes of Star Trek were finally launched in the UK after they'd been banned for years because of torture and disturbing content. And they were the episodes The Empath and Whom Gods Destroy. Mm. Was this the original series or TNG or... How, how long did you say they'd been banned? It must, it must be the original series because TNG only came out of it. It was season three of the original series. Okay. Yeah, right, yes. I, I have no context because I don't really watch it. But I thought it was quite interesting they'd been banned for quite a long time. One of the things I found surprising once on watching something on BBC Two was the TV series Farscape, which was very good, but I only remember watching bits of it. But I do remember at 6.45 on a midday evening probably a wednesday or thursday one of the characters very audibly said shit on bbc2 <laughs> and i was like whoa, 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 whoa hold up this has changed the landscape of swearing for me all i remember about farscape is uh, it's one of the shows that uh, got cancelled when they didn't know they were going to get cancelled so mm. the last episode of series four every character gets killed and then it comes up to be continued and it was never continued. So who knows what happened to them? Breaks your heart. Doomed. Um, other little random facts. So I don't know if you guys were really into the original It, but it was broadcast for the first time on BBC One. And I actually, I like the remake, but the original was my favourite. Like, it had Seth Green in it as well. So that's always an adorable factor. I am there for anything with Tim Curry in it. I am there for It. I am there for Rocky Horror. I am there for Monk in the episodes that he played Dale the Whale, I believe. I am there for the Command and Conquer computer games in which he plays a Russian. I'm there for Tim Curry. I've lost Bowie. When I lose Curry and when I lose Kate Bush, I, that's pretty much just me checking out of life, I think. Oh, no. Bush and Curry. Garrett's favourite things. <laughs> <laughs> Although one of the random... No, John, John, John. If Alice B is still alive, I'm clinging on. <laughs> She's the next person we'll approach to come on. <laughs> and reject I'm sure us. You'll love the beer bush and curry jacket. Yes. Man, we're lowering the tone tonight. Yeah, that's what we normally do. Have you got Stephen Milligan? <laughs> Since the tones are really quite low, did you pick up on that one? Who's Stephen Milligan? Oh, is he the guy who's killed in a Bangladeshi race crime? No. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's not a lower tone. Already low. You go to Bangladeshi race race crime rather than is he the guy that shoved seven hot dogs up his ass or something? What? Gareth's getting closer. Who's Stephen Milligan? Please enlighten us. He was a Conservative MP and he died in 1994. Oh, of course. Yeah. And he was found naked apart from two stockings um, on his legs, a third on his arm, plastic bag over his head length flex around his neck and an orange in his mouth. Isn't that what that guy off that, um, oh, he was on, who was David on David Carradine. I wasn't going to say him, 
But you know that other one who was on British TV and he was was it a property program and he was found self self asphyxiated. I'm fairly certain Martin Roberts from Homes Under the Hammer is still alive. (laughs) (laughs) You've got Nick Michael Hutchins from NXS, David Carradine, and Stephen Milligan are the three iconic people to have perished this way. I'm going to Google and find the other one because there's definitely, definitely someone on random UK daytime TV who died that way. I only raised that because it's quite interesting. The one we'll get to in the true crime element of the show, the police's mind did go to, maybe this was some kind of deliberate asphyxiation thing going on. Whereas I can only possibly think of that's such an outlandish thing that maybe the idea of Stephen Milliken's death put the idea in their heads. Yes. It does, it does seem like there wasn't necessarily a wave of video nasties or a wave of, you know, people pretending to do Mortal Kombat on the playground that makes a lot of teenagers think, oh, I know, that Tory MP's died via autoerotic asphyxiation. Let's all give that a go. Yeah, I'm going to be on searching for this for ages. I've just turned into a dark hole of autoerotic asphyxiation. Maybe don't. R.I.P. your browser history. Christian Digby, host of BBC One's daytime property show to buy or not to buy, was found dead in his home by a worried friend who had come to check on him. He had a plastic bin liner over his head and he had suffocated. Thank you. Four people to have died. You can cut that out now. I've searched for it. (laughs) I mean, I I love that John used the word iconic and you came up with Christopher Digby, somebody who I've never even heard of until this very moment. R.I.P. Chris. It obviously stuck in my mind, Reed. You know I'm all about the weird shit that occurs in the world. What else happened in 1994, Claire? Other things that happened in 1994. Every Man, the TV documentary about Jeffrey Dahmer that featured his father. Not Alan. Every Man. Every Man. <laughs> I have Every Man. <laughs> Hashtag. Fucking hell. Anyway, that documentary about Jeffrey Dahmer that fe- featured Lionel Dahmer, that was a thing in that year. My... If you listen to the previous podcast, we'll know that this is a movie that was very close to my heart. The Lion King was released in this year. So I must have been quite old when we were singing this in the playground because I was nine. Perfect Disney age. Like, yeah. Funnily enough, do you know what we were singing in the playground from 1994? Around age nine. Good thing is, Gareth, I haven't cut these callbacks. So you can do it. It's fine. Oh, no. Well, no, I don't know. These callbacks have stayed in. You'll be pleased to know. (laughs) You're not just doing this in a vacuum. You you do do the detective song. (laughs) I am not doing, I screw, give us a loop, (laughs) number one, number two. For I don't know that that was broadcast in 1994. What I was referring to was, oh, if you're feeling kind of tedious and life is seriously mediocre, is <laughs> a way to get the adrenaline flowing. Just bored of Boeing going high. You're living the high life. You're living it well. I'm going to stop now for contractual um, copyright reasons. But the theme tune to the 1994 sitcom the High Life, starring Alan Cumming, was going to be the subject of my sitcom corner, half-remembered sitcom corner this evening. Um, it's, it's not going to be because John called me out on it. Um, that's not the only reason. It is a brilliant sitcom. Piff Paff Poff isn't on YouTube, even though if you type the High Life Piff Paff Poff in, <laughs> this, people have clearly been searching for it. This frustrates me. This frustrates me deeply. So I'm going to talk about very briefly about the the almost 
iconic when you think of half-remembered sitcoms that I can also remember all of the words to the theme tune to Men of the World starring David Threlfall and John Sim, which I do believe I've mentioned before on this show. But the, the thing that's quite interesting is that it's a sub men behaving badly pre-Watershed men behaving badly sort of TV sitcom in which two oddly paired people who work in a travel agency together get into some farcical scrapes. Um, but the, the interesting thing from a sort of a death timeliness point is that it premiered early in 1994. It was written and indeed starred uh, Daniel Peacock, who you may know as the son of Trevor Peacock, who you may also know as fantastic character actor, played people like Old Bailey in Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere TV series. However, he also played Jim Trot, Jim, no, 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 Trot, in The Vicar of Dibley, which also premiered later that year. So you're getting two, or you're getting four sitcoms for one, um, and who, it must be said, sadly died approximately a month ago, not in Sunderland, um, but in Somerset. And so it's just a weird, weird thing that you've got a father and a son whose sitcoms are both pretty much competing against each other. But Men of the World, relatively average, pretty good, but in fact got cancelled, didn't get a third series because too many people were comparing it to Men Behaving Badly. There you go, 1994 sitcoms. Only thing I can remember about it is I can remember one scene slash joke that is based on a misunderstanding of the phrase, how's your father? I don't know why that stayed with me in 1994. It's basically like someone is using it as a euphemism for getting more acquainted and someone else thinks that he has to ask about how their dad is. And humour arises from this situation. It, it does seem like a particularly strained statement. That's not to say that the entire series was, because I remember I watched the entire series, so my nine-year-old brain clearly, you know... But I got into a lot of sitcoms with, that were vastly inappropriate for me at a very young age. Like, I was watching Bottom when I was six and things like that. Probably not the healthiest environment. Claire's blanked now. <laughs> it's almost like we're talking about Doctor Who. Glazed over, I don't know what's going right. on. As most of our listeners have by now, so I'll shut up. <laughs> to be fair, I write all of these sitcoms... Sitcoms? <laughs> That's not a word. Sitcoms down, and I do, like, try and find episodes, because I'm like, I want to know what this is. But it's just, there's a list, and it's getting longer and longer and longer. Speaking of comedies of the early 90s and our entire Raisin Detra, which is, oh yeah, that happened. Another thing that is a brilliant, brilliant moment from the day to day is when Steve Coogan plays the Sinn Féin spokesman who has, <laughs> who has to inhale helium before he speaks on television to detract credibility from his statements. Because, <laughs> oh, yes. of course, that was a deliberate joke about something that really did happen. Because 1994 was the year that the broadcast ban on Sinn Féin being allowed to speak on the news or on TV was lifted. And of course, it was such a badly written piece of legislation that all the BBC did or all the newscasters did was just have Gerry Adams or Martin McGuinness speaking and then just have an Irish actor voicing what they were saying in time to what they were saying. So it made literally no impact whatsoever, apart from making the the government look incredibly stupid what what i will say john is um on the day that we're recording this who would have thought that there would ever be problems in northern ireland again mm-hmm. i mean i knew i think coming up i guess <laughs> depending on how the current news works out 
we might have to do a little bit look at the troubles because I remember it played on my mind an awful lot not helped by the fact that I had a sister who was in the army and serving in Northern Ireland in this this era so we might have to look at it in detail as a irreverent podcast we can't come up with anything funnier than the law of the land being that when there was a documentary about prisoners in the maze prison you could hear them with their own voices when they were talking about their personal lives but if they said anything at all about why they were in the maze prison they had to immediately switch from their native accents to BBC voices mouthing their saying their words along with them as they mouth their, <laughs> mouth their words and that includes a section when they're talking about how they don't get very good sausage rolls in prison. I didn't get very good sausage rolls at Durham University so I think their standards are massively massively high for this. There's a Greg's. There's a Greg's in town. What were you doing eating Durham University fodder when there's a Greg's down the street? Because I got my food paid for and in the first year when I was living in, and Ooh, I didn't gosh. want to spend an extra one pound twenty or whatever on a Greg's sausage roll. And in fact, I don't even think it was a Greg's when I was there. I think it was a baker's oven. So wow, this is great banter. No, the Sorry. Greg's, the Greg's <laughs> was welcome, on. Welcome it, to the is where the Greg's is now in Durham, but there was there was a Greg's the other side of the road from it. Yeah. <laughs> this is great banter. Welcome to the country's only regionally specific baking podcast. <laughs> if you want to know where you could get two steak bakes for a quid circa <laughs> 2001, you're listening to the right pod. Right. My final 1994, speaking of jokes and bad things, 1994 was the year of the House of Horrors in Gloucester and mm-hmm. the arrests of Fred and Rosa West, to which, as a serious aside, if you haven't already, you really should read Happy Like Murderers by Gordon Byrne, who is a Northeastern writer, or was, sadly he's passed away. Absolutely brilliant true crime writer, and that's probably his best book. Two things I remember about The House of Horrors. First of all, I don't remember before that any crime story really dominating the country to the extent that wherever I went, like someone was like, oh, they found another body. That was all the grown-ups were talking about. The second one was joke delivery mediums. Because now... Tread carefully, John. Tread carefully. No, right. There's no... I won't even do the jokes. If you do, like, even a bad taste, topical joke today, Twitter, out into the world, 10 seconds. I don't, obviously. I save all my bad taste material for this. That's what, how it is now, right? Prior to that, you used to get round-robin emails... Before every World Cup, you'd get, here are the squads for the World Cup. Hertz Van Rental gets things moving in the midfield for the Dutch. <laughs> the Brazilian fellatio has been pulled out. Oh, or you'd get the Olymp one. Here is some commentary from the eleven Cena snatch, kissing the cocks. And so that was round-robin emails before there was Twitter. And then before that, I remember my parents came into possession of like a fake advert for Fred West builders that like we, which had some jokes in it. I don't remember the jokes now, but it was like, it was all laid down. We, you're cut, you're covered. You know, or our family have been in, in buildings for years. <laughs> um, I, I do remember them. And I like them. <laughs> but you know, like, that that was that was what it was like in 1984. If there was a list of topical gags, someone had to write them, print them off, and then you would like take them home, memorize them, and then pass them on to someone else. We did that. But I, I want to take issue with what you said just very, very, very briefly. I don't want to sidetrack us. 
by that being the first murder that sort of, I guess, gripped the nation. Because I would argue that um, Jamie Bulger the year before mm -hmm. was probably the first one, certainly that I can remember. That there were, I guess, fewer jokes just knocking around, unsurprisingly. Even but... though Scousers famously have the best sense of humour. <laughs> but definitely in my school playground, there were a lot of horrible, horrible jokes, but probably because we were between the ages of Jamie Bulger and his uh, and his killers at that time. So I think it was probably a defence mechanism to uh, to make sure that we just, you know, weren't psychologically scarred by the fact that our little brother or indeed our older brother could have done or had done such violent things to them. So Absolutely. Or 94 stuff, Claire. So to summarise, it was the first Hoot Nanny with Jules Holland. <laughs> the nemesis opened at all. The worst powers. year ever. <laughs> I love the way that the line probably hasn't changed since then. I bet the first line for Jules Holland's Hoot Nanny was, I don't know where this gun is, but I'm a fake. I don't know where this gun is, Beverly Knight. It was Sting, the Gypsy Kings, and Sly and Robbie, but you're on the right track. Oh, of course, it was the Blumman Gypsy Kings. With Jules joining them on Boogie Woogie Piano. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Mm -hmm. American friend, Roland Riveron! Roland Riveron! <laughs> it was the first Whitby Goth weekend ever, 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 ever. There's, um, there's been a schism, I believe. Don't hold me to this. A what? <laughs> there's been a schism in the Whitby, Whitby Goth weekend. Because there are now, like, three or four of them. And like ever so often, like left-wing political parties or roller derby teams, ever so often they all have a row. And now literally there's about 20 Whitby Goth weekends, all with different branding. They split into two like mops in Fantasia and they keep spreading. <laughs> weekend is Goth Weekend in Whitby. That's, that would have been a good sort of general question for this podcast. What is the pettiest, almost weirdest schism you ever noticed? Because there's the same thing happened at the Edinburgh Free Fringe. <laughs> It's weird, isn't it? People yeah. are weird. People are weird. And my final random tidbit from 1994 was it was the release of Cotton Eye Joe by the Redneck. One of my favourite things in the world is a guy called Phil Fletcher, who is the puppeteer of Hacker T-Dog from CBBS. Who's brilliant. Uh, who is brilliant. Mm. And Hacker T-Dog's favourite song is Cotton Eye Joe. And he sings Cotton Eye Joe constantly and brilliantly. Hack of the Dog is the best thing about having young children. Second best thing is parking close to the supermarket. I'll have to get back to you about the third. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my summary of 1994. I mean, I did have some other shit, but it's not really worth talking about. Well, one was that John Firth won Stars in Their Eyes as Marty Pello, which I thought was a callback to your Stars in Their Eyes as a child. It wasn't enough, Marty Pello, that year. I saw that. It was like, Love is All Around was number one for eight months. And then someone was like, should we have it as Stars in Their Eyes as well? I mean, Christ. And it was also the first ever National Lottery hosted by Noel Edmonds. And I really vividly remember watching that one because Mam had got all the numbers ready and she played them avidly for months and months and years and years and years and, years and never fucking won anything <laughs> it's not the same anymore the lottery's not the same i mean they used to Nothing. name the machines and like number the sets of balls and there was a build-up to it and i don't know it's just shit now my mum's best friend my auntie shirley not my actual auntie Auntie Shirley. She used to work for Camelot. Really? For what she was verifying winners. Ooh. Cool jobs that people have. Like she's lovely. Absolutely lovely, lovely, lovely woman. She's got a lovely giggly voice. 
And I don't know why she's friends with my mum. I don't know what's in it for Shirley. Did they bond over candle collections? If you thought you won the lottery and rang up Camelot, the voice you would have heard would have been my Auntie Shirley. Auntie Shirley. Mm-hmm. I got number 10. That's basically Number it. 15. That's what she'd be like. Oh, come on then, tell me what the voice is like. Have you, what, have you got your numbers? Have you got your ticket there, love? <laughs> yeah, you've won a million quid. Well done. I can imagine ringing someone and having that as your response. Yeah. Do we commence the real crime bit now? <laughs> Let's. I will now cut to Concerts Premier Ellie Kemper Impersonator doing our disclaimer. Hello, I'm Concerts Premier Ellie Kemper Impersonator and I'm here to read the disclaimer. Everyone Dies in Sunderland explores some of the darkest moments of North East history and includes jokes. These jokes will never be at the expense of victims or their families and will always be at the expense of people who deserve to be mocked, robbed of their power and shown off the idiots they really are. If you're easily offended or personally connected to the events we're discussing, though, you probably shouldn't listen. Simon Martin was last seen alive by his parents at about 5pm on May the 18th, 1990, when he went out to play football. His parents told him to come home for his tea at 6, but he never came home. And on the 26th of May 1990, the 14-year-old's body was found by two children playing in a derelict building called Gillside House in Roker. So here's a BBC News report from 2013, which gives us an early indication of how things panned out from here. Mistakes in the initial investigation included a pathologist failing to spot strangulation marks on the teenager's neck. Police also did not consider it might have been a sexual assault. How how do you miss strangulation marks? I mean, they're pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, later crimes, you could make a case for how they were missed, but not this one. I do try to avoid these kind of details, but he was naked from the waist down. So you're not considering it might have been a sexual assault? Northumbria (laughs) Police interviewed Stephen Greveson, who at this point had at least 12 criminal convictions, three days after the body was found because the pair had been seen together the day Simon went missing. And uh, now I believe, Claire, if you've got your lions ready, um, I'm going to introduce Stephen with a description from his mother, Kathy. Stephen was a mummy's boy. Still is. He just got into mischief. He was always in and out of prison. 38 convictions since he was 12 for stealing. He never did a long sentence, though. Not until he went down for murder. There is another quote from that interview which also stands out. I wasn't always there for them. But that's because I used to go to bingo and that. When she said he's never done a long sentence, does she not mean that in the better. criminal sense or the linguistic sense? <laughs> oh, because he's, he's not sounding like the, uh, the brightest button in the button drawer. <laughs> we don't want to give Greveson any sympathy, but it's pretty likely that he was sexually abused in childhood, including while he was in the care system. And a social services report in 1986 described him as an emotionally fragile boy who needs the close support of his mother, which he does not get because she used to go to the bingo and that. Mm-hmm. But Greveson was ruled out because he said he'd never been to Gillside House. But another 16-year-old was charged with Simon's murder after his fingerprint was found there. He deserves his subsequent payout from the Home Office, not least for this apparent exchange. You went into that house with Simon and something went seriously wrong. No, something seriously went wrong with your investigation. <laughs> 16-year-old there. He's from the North, John. Yes. Yeah. Got a deep voice as all the ciggies. That wasn't what I was saying. Even a 16-year-old who's just been arrested for murder can point out how stupid the police investigation is. Yes, correct. 
heartbreakingly during his um, questioning, he also uh, points out that they need to let him out so he can do his exams because presumably <laughs> this was happening during his O-levels, the poor sod. Oh my God. Of all of the things that we've heard on this podcast, that is got to be up there with the non-murder sadness. In August 1991, Stephen Greveson was charged with the attempted murder of a 14-year-old, and he's also alleged to have sexually assaulted or attempted to sexually assault five more boys between 1990 and 1993, which is when things took an even more sinister turn. On the 26th of November, the body of 18-year-old Thomas Kelly was found with his scarf around his neck in a burning shed in an allotment in Fulwell. On the 4th of February, 1994, the body of 15-year-old David Hansen was found in a fire at a derelict house in Roker with a length of material around his neck. And on the 25th of February, same year, the body of David Grief was found in another shed fire 50 metres away from the first shed fire at the same allotment as Thomas Kelly. His belt was around his neck. I mean, that's, I- that's when there's a pattern, yeah? I was well, going to say, I would have I would have got it too, but if you were just going for the one more to be sure, then yeah, I, I can understand that. On the nail. You can't go with one more to be sure when there's a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Sunderland police clearly did. So as the judge would say at the the later trial, there were numerous and striking similarities. (laughs) Not least the cans of lighter fluid left at the scene. And as the Independent wrote at the time, no one can make sense of the murders, including the police. Now, that's not fair because the police did make sense of it. Solvent abuse with an element of deliberate self-asphyxiation and fire. What? 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 How? I, I am. I'm just at a loss as to how they came to that conclusion. Yes. Well, they helpfully launched a public information campaign about the dangers of strangling yourself while sniffing glue next to a fire. Is that why we <laughs> had to watch all those videos as children at school about kids sniffing glue in graveyards? Is that his fault? <laughs> well, I, I believe it was an industry before the, okay. these specific murders, especially still water and playing on slag heaps. But <laughs> fundamentally, it wouldn't have helped. No. Well, you know, it very much reminded me of Hillsborough, to be fair, in the sense that, if nothing else, dying should be the last bad thing that happens to you. You shouldn't have the police then go around telling everyone it was your fault. Mm. And it's, of course, not just the three victims who had their reputations trashed by the police. Their entire school got tarred with the same crappy brush. Jim Farney, who was head teacher at the time, I became very angry, first of all, for the parents of the boys who had this label, but it also labelled the rest of the students and the school as a drug school. The vast majority of people felt there was something a lot more sinister going on, and the deaths were too much of a coincidence to be accidental. Now, some people have suggested that the drug story was a cover that the police put out there deliberately while they investigated a serial killer. But you don't need to smear the dead to do that, do you? No. It seems, yeah. They, they could have just alternatively said nothing. My other question is, and it's probably tasteless to ask this, but was it a drug school? <laughs> I don't know very much about uh, Monk Wearmouth School in 1994, because I didn't have anything to do with Sunderland until about 10 years later. I know, obviously, the nickname of the school is Monkey House. But if you're going to go to places of in Sunderland, such as <laughs> such as Hendon, where I used to live, that make people go, <sighs> if you say that's where you live, Monk Wearmouth would not be top of the list of those places. Okay, so there's there's not a huge chance that there's going to be a Zamo kicking around. Yeah, there was a Zamo kicking around, Stephen Greveson. Um, <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> 
Yeah, but in the later words of Jim Farney, if you've made your mind up that this has happened and it was self-inflicted, why do you look for anyone else? Mm. And, and they didn't have to look very far for anyone else because at the scene of David Hansen's killing, Stephen Grieveson's fingerprint was found on a basement window and a boarding torn down to fourth century. Uh, they also found Stephen Grieveson's footprint. David Grief was with friends the night he died when Grieveson joined them and Grief went off with Grieveson and was never seen again. But it's the murder of Thomas Kelly which found the police at their most Haribo squad. So... <laughs> First of all, Thomas Kelly met Stephen Greveson at a police lineup. Naturally, Greveson was the suspect. So the police didn't just fail to keep Thomas Kelly safe. They introduced him to his killer and then put them on a bus home together. Why was what was Kelly doing, for want of a better phrase, fingering him? Sorry. <laughs> I, think a, I think we might have to cut that phrase. <laughs> um, no, he was I th- he was also in the lineup. He was, I think, I guess being paid a fiver to be another Sunderland youth stood next to Stephen Greaveson. Do you get paid to be in a lineup? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not much. Yeah. If, as, as I was saying earlier, I've watched Bottom, the TV series, since I was knee high. And if there's one thing I've learned from that, they got paid for being in the lineup. Sorry, no, there's just one weird sort of, I, I, and it's my entire, it's my own issue. You look at, you read the story of Stephen Greaveson. And you realise that now he's a 50-year-old man. Mm-hmm. So kind of in your mind while you're telling the story, John, he's always been a 50-year-old. You don't think of him mm-hmm. as a con- contemporary youth. You think him or of almost a 50-year-old man preying on nope. your teenagers, when in fact that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, what, what age was he when he was committing these crimes? Uh, he's a couple, few years older than them, but he's only in his early 20s. And yeah. he looks he looks younger. And that's, I think, another really, really scary thing about this was that he, um, he, he looks, and there's no way of saying this without looking crass, there's some photos of him and he just looks like such an, an ordinary early 90s lad, right down to his haircut and clothes. And I know I'm not saying that you know, serial killers are like Reg Wilson and they've got psycho and chaos tattooed onto their forehead, literally, but... Like one of the photos does the rounds of Greaveson is like he was possibly still is a very talented footballer. We hinted that with some of the message board quotes. And like one of the photos is him in like his football kit looking like he's really happy. And obviously he pretty was at that moment, obviously. But yeah, he is horrifyingly young. And you make a very valid point that this is one of the most horrendous parts of this is like it's, it, it's not a much older man preying on teenagers. It's someone who's barely older than teenagers and known to them from the community preying on teenagers. Yeah, that's fine. I just had this sort of vision of him on one side of the glass and and his victim on the other side of the glass being a, you know, being a witness or something to it rather than putting two and two together and thinking, no, time works like that. Yes, but uh, somehow it gets worse. The only ID Thomas Kelly had on his body was his front door key. And here's a quote from his sister, Lindsay. My mum and dad were sitting in our front room waiting for news when we heard a key scraping in the lock. Mum and dad jumped up and there was a moment of pure hope that somehow Thomas was walking back through the door. Then it opened and a policeman walked in and said, must be him then. And that's how I found out that my brother was dead. Wow, that's dark. Round of applause, police. Yeah, I find it very difficult not to swear in mm-hmm. everyday conversation. I find it even more difficult not to swear on this podcast. I'm finding it increasingly difficult not to swear as this story goes on. I think in an early episode, you said, we don't want to go full ACAB. Maybe we can say, um, we can go full hashtag not all cab. 
<laughs> but definitely these cab. Definitely these cab. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the end, uh, the families of the boys joining forces, comparing notes and pressuring the detectives finally led to the murder investigation being launched eight months after this. Um, the case was reviewed with a new detective in charge. This detective commissioned new autopsies, which concluded that Thomas Kelly, David Hansen and David Grief had actually been strangled. And Greaveson's DNA was recovered from David Grief's body. So even Sunderland Police of 1993-1994 couldn't mess up from here. And in November 1995, Stephen Greaveson was charged with the murders of Thomas Kelly, David Grief and David Hansen. When the trial began in January 1996, the prosecution stated that Greaveson was gay and either unwilling or unable to accept his sexuality and killed his victims to prevent them from revealing that he had demonstrated his sexual preferences to them, or alternatively, because he enjoyed killing. Once again, kind of speechless in this episode. So Greaveson did admit responsibility for the deaths that said all three times he'd killed them accidentally while threatening them not to reveal his sexuality. But in February of 1996, he was convicted and sentenced to 35 years in prison. And a report shortly afterwards by the Police Complaints Authority concluded somehow that the police were insensitive in their dealings with the families and the Northumbria police did make an unequivocal apology. As we were sort of discussing earlier, when you said the families banded together, Mm -hmm. I can't work out if this should be turned into a kind of a a proper horror film where the authorities don't believe anybody or just quite simply a lady killer style farce (laughs) where the police bumble around insulting everybody they possibly can making everything much much worse for people because I think either are legitimate at this point yep but the the murder of Simon Martin did remain unsolved Um, Now, in another quote from the football message board, um, a schoolmate of Stephen Greveson describes him as a right horrible sly current. Now, I don't know if that's someone typing in a Mackham accent or trying (laughs) to get around the censors, because famously, as as a Watford fan, um, we used to have terrible problem if anyone ever wanted to talk about how Danny Shittu was playing, because it meant that you instantly got kicked off the message board. (laughs) (laughs) In 2000, Greveson's DNA was found on Simon Martin's body. He was arrested and questioned, but denied any involvement. In 2004, however, he did formally and finally confess to the three murders he had been convicted of. Despite that confession, it was only in 2012 that he admitted killing Simon Martin, again claiming that he did so to stop Simon revealing his sexuality. One quick thing, again, um, like I, I studied law at university, mm-hmm. but what baffles me and what has what you've just sort of alluded to is that he was in prison for 35 Mm -hmm. years yet rather than just drag him out of his cell and start shouting at him they had to re-arrest a man already in prison for it just seems like i don't know a bizarre way of going about it an innocent until proven guilty and all of that but at the same time the efficacy of the police and is probably put into question when they need to re-arrest somebody who's already in prison for 35 years. What I was struck by, and I don't know anything about police procedure, but he was in, probably still is, Full Sutton Prison in York was where yeah. he was in. So the police from Sunderland in 20, I don't know, 2000 or maybe 2012, or both presumably, went down to York, I know it's only like an hour away, down the A19, arrested him in prison, drove him back to Sunderland, 
questioned him and then drove him back to York. I don't understand why the police can't just interview him in York. Well, this is what I mean. If, if yeah. you are, if you do, if you know, if you are in the police and you're not, please let us know. Exactly, you're not unhappy by the things we've been saying. And I would say, surely, as a police person, you are furious that your colleagues were so incompetent in 1994, and you fully agree with us. But anyway, do tell us why that doesn't happen, because I'd be fascinated to know. Yeah, and remember, not hashtag ACAB. <laughs> just some, so. Probably, probably not you. If you're listening, you're, you're probably one of the good ones that hasn't seriously mishandled a murder inquiry, and you've probably just planted drugs on someone or something like that. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> probably. There is another Sunderland murder of this era, which is somehow worse, which we will hopefully get to at some point. Although it's a really, I mean, it's not like any of them aren't hard, but it's something that I find hard researching, but. Somehow, the Sunderland police of this era do have new depths that we haven't found yet. That's all I'll say about that one, because in the particular case, proceedings are active, or at least they were active a year ago and have gone quiet again. But we'll revisit that at some point. But like, oh, it, it gets worse for the Sunderland police. <laughs> Don't you worry. This, we're just we're approaching the barrel. Is that going to be the Police Academy 2 episode? <laughs> Police Academy 3. Exactly. <laughs> this is our second one. This is Police Academy 2. Police Academy 1 was, we've got those blokes beer mats, but we still yeah. haven't found the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, I've done it. I've said his nickname. Damn it. Bad John. <laughs> Number two is another dead teenager. Probably a drugs thing. No point in investigating. And then Police Academy 3 is to come. <laughs> And all we can say about that one is, let's hope that the Sunderland police of 2021 have really upped their game and are finally going to uh, get justice for that particular victim and their family. Anyway, in court, Stephen Grieveson said that um, Simon's murder had haunted him for 20 years and driven him mad and made him self-harm, which is, of course, why he denied it for almost 30 years, even when he was arrested for it subsequently, and even when he confessed to all the other crimes. The horrible Sly Kernt. Uh, in 2013 he was finally convicted of the crime uh, leading to police officer roger ford having this to say gareth we now know that he went on to be a serial killer but at that time there was nothing to indicate that albeit now with the benefit of hindsight clearly we can see that he was There is, of course, another possibility, Claire, which also comes from our number one source, Sunderland Football Club message boards. Worked with a lad a few years ago who claimed Greveson was fitted up and he was a canny lad, really. Showed us pictures of them together and went on as if it was all just a conspiracy. Fucking odd bloke. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the end of this horrible story, which brings us to our palate cleansing rabbit hole corner which is of course places that you ended up on the internet while researching this episode which had nothing to do with this episode very quickly my rabbit hole corner was simply that i just watched a lot of men of the world <laughs> and tried in vain to find piff paff pop on youtube i've got a much better song than piff paff pop if claire gives me control claire do you have any rabbit holes so it's linked to the oh hi there yes so randomly, so I was on our Instagram and one of the people we follow, Broomhouse Farm, they shared about children's school dinners when you were younger. And this took me down a path of like, oh, I remember the pink custard and the vanilla sprinkles and like the green custard you would have with the chocolate cake and random combinations and things like that. And then I ended up getting a message from someone who was like, have you Googled 
where vanilla comes from. <laughs> and this took me down an interesting wormhole about beaver anal gland secretions. <laughs> so apparently the beaver's anus has glands near it that deliver secretions called castorium that they actually use to mark their territory and attract a mate. Which That's Latin mean... for beaver. What? Is it? Yeah. Wow. Oh, I know okay. that. My mum was a beaver fact. leader for years. A and beaver it, leader. There, there, isn't, there isn't like an Arcala equivalent in beaver. You have to think it up for yourself. So when she was started doing it, she said, um, like, can you come up with a name for me? And I researched beavers. R.I.P. My browser history. <laughs> and I came up with caster, which is Latin for beaver. Wow. I didn't actually get that far down the dark hole. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So to attract a mate, they have this lovely secretion that to us helps taste things like vanilla, which in hindsight, is that why people have nicknamed other variations of the human body a beaver? Is that why that came from that? Or is it, you know what I mean? I was like, well, is that is that something like... Can, sorry, can you just explain the link again between the anal glands? and Because you said, helps our body taste like vanilla. No, helps us so... They produce the secretion tastes like vanilla. Oh, right, okay. And right. it's used as a food additive. It's also used in the perfume industry as well, but it's used as a food additive to help flavor things as vanilla. So technically, vanilla flavoring, if it contains castorium, is not vegan friendly. I just thought it came from vanilla pods. It what? does. Apparently, like 90% oh, of is, it does come from that. Is there but... a difference as well, potentially, between vanilla essence and vanilla extract? Because vanilla extract comes from vanilla pods and vanilla essence it's is... fake vanilla. Fake vanilla. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So vanilla yeah, sponge, beaver really anus. Proper expensive vanilla, then. That's my takeaway from this. Yeah, vanilla. Or buy a proper expensive beaver and have it on tap. Do you think Vanilla Ice knew that that was where it came from as well? So he's like, beaver ice. <laughs> beaver anus ice. Yeah. <laughs> a very niche tribute act. Mm -hmm. If you've got a problem, I'll solve it. Check out my hook while I just secrete some juice. <laughs> <laughs> so... What is, for my rabbit hole, the ultimate 1980s charity ensemble single? It's I think I know be... the answer, but I'm going to say Band-Aid. Yeah, it's got to be like that or some children in need shit. Which Band-Aid? The one that's got big fun song you're in one of 10cc that no one talks about? No, I think Gareth's got it. And that's my prediction. Gareth, what is the ultimate 1980s charity ensemble single? Is it Doctor in the TARDIS, John? No! What? A real single by the KLF pretending to be the Time Lords as a way of proving that they could make a number one single. Oh, fine. Okay. Write a book about it. No, you're thinking of Doctor in Distress. Doctor in Distress. That's the one. We all remember Doctor in Distress, right? Except me, who thinks it's Doctor in the TARDIS. Claire, do you remember Doctor in Distress? Definitely no. So in 1985, uh, the BBC announced Doctor Who was going on hiatus for 18 months due to falling viewing figures and uh, maybe a perceived drop in quality. I don't know how they could have said that from this era of Doctor Who. I really don't. <laughs> but some fans of the show, actually, no, it was, it was pretty much, actually, no, I'm wrong. It was the show itself. I believe it was in a uh, legendary <laughs> Doctor Who showrunner of the day, John Nathan Turner and his partner, the producer Gary Downey came up with an idea to try and save Doctor Who with the power of an ensemble charity single called Doctor in Distress. They were hopeful 
that they were going to get Elton John and Frankie goes to Hollywood to uh, <laughs> to be on it. Sadly, that didn't happen. It was written by a huge Doctor Who fan and actually quite a successful producer and songwriter. I didn't realise. Was uh, it Hans Zimmer? No, it was <laughs> it was Ian Levine, um, who is Doctor Who's unofficial continuity announcer. As such a huge Doctor Who fan, also I believe Gareth, apparently the only man to be a DC Comics completist. Yes, that's probably true. It wouldn't surprise me if somebody like Kim Newman was up there as well, because I've been to Kim Newman's Islington flat, and dear God, if he's not a DC Comics completist, he's damn near there. So Ian Levine ended up writing and producing songs for Take That. So, I mean, he is also a writer and and producer of of some note. So he was uh, charged with coming up with this song. And a quote I've got from him on it was, it was an absolute balls up fiasco. It was pathetic and bad and stupid and it almost (laughs) ruined me. I mean, that could be used to describe any episode of Doctor Who, to be fair. He he, he couldn't get Elton John and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but he did get Bobby G from Buck's Fizz, David Van Day from Dollar, some of the cast of Starlight Express and Matt Bianco. (laughs) Did somebody say Matt Bianco? Simon Roberts on the line. Hello, Simon. Hello. You're through to Matt Bianco. Hello, Matt Bianco. Hello, 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 Simon. Simon. Hello. She's gone. Evergreen. Evergreen (laughs) clip. The good news is, though, that uh, that Gary Glitter dislocated his shoulder and had to pull out. So, small mercies. I'm John, you left that open for a very tasteless joke there. And I'm desperately glad that, that I didn't think to jump in. We did have to cut a bit of Colin Baker from this clip, but it's important that I don't think enough people have heard Doctor in Distress um, because somehow it failed to chart. Um, <laughs> it's important we, uh, we hear a bit of Doctor in Distress now, but not the verse song by Colin Baker, regrettably, which I wanted to keep here, but it did take the clip to over a minute or indeed the bit sung by uh, Anthony Ainley, the uh, incumbent master. There was a brigadier and a master and a canine computer. Each screaming girl just hoped a yeti wouldn't shoot her. So that is That Was My Rabbit Hole this week, the charity single that was recorded because a group of people were annoyed that Doctor Who was going to come back slightly later than it otherwise would have done. And the sad thing is, because of both both concerts, probably Ellie Kemp impersonators, criticisms and Claire's endorsement of them, we're going to have to leave it a few weeks before we play the Canine and Company theme song. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think brings a lot to the joy of the nation. I really do. But there is a reason for me talking about Doctor in Distress, apart from the fact I just want to play it. Who played keyboards on Doctor in Distress? (sighs) Jules Holland. (laughs) I literally can't believe we've got a callback and you've already mentioned him. And here we are. Is it Hans Zimmer? Hans Zimmer. Zimmer. He really did play keyboards on Doctor in Distress. Like, he's going to be on every episode. If we can do it. 
I mean, I'm tempted just to, just to play one more time the uh, either Doctrine Distress or Matt Bianco, you're a bunch of wankers, <laughs> just because there's no better way to finish the show than that. But if we have nothing else to say, uh, details about tonight's show uh, can be found on Teletext, page 618. Crimes of the kinds we cover are very rare. Please do sleep well. Don't have nightmares. Bye. 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 <laughs> Bye-bye.